Morning, church. Let's pray together. Father God, we are so grateful to be with your family here today. Father, we pray that uh, as we cry out for mercy together, Lord, that you would bless us. We thank you that we are so privileged to be people of mercy, walking and living in your grace and mercy. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to be in Psalm 123 today. If you have your Bibles and would like to turn there. A woman by the name of Marion Lusted shares this following memory. She says, My dad kept a coin jar on his dresser. And every night when he got home from work, the first thing he did was head upstairs to change his clothes. And we could hear the familiar jingling of coins as they spilled from his pocket and he set them in that jar. She goes on and says, When I was about nine years old, I decided that his coins should be mine. And over time, I pilfered a few quarters here and there, a handful of pennies. Before I knew it, I had successfully swindled my dad out of his loose change. And he never noticed. Sometime later, she writes, guilt gripped me. I knew that what I'd been doing could only be considered stealing. I had no way to explain away my behavior, and so with a pounding heart, I penned an apology to him, confessing my sin and asking him to forgive me. I tucked it under the coin jar along with a pile of pennies as restitution. I waited anxiously for my dad to confront me. Day one went by, he didn't say anything. Another day passed and still nothing. And then another and another. And eventually, I forgot all about that note. And then one day, out of the blue, my dad stepped into my bedroom and he said, Marion, I got your note and the pennies. My heart raced. My throat felt like a marble was lodged in it. I was expecting punishment. But he seemed on the verge of tears. But that didn't make any sense. I had wronged him. He had every right to be mad and to punish me. But instead, he said, thank you for the note. And then he gave me a hug. And then he left. We never, ever spoke of it again. I stood there dumbfounded. Why, when I fully fully deserved my father's wrath, did he instead show me mercy? I didn't deserve it. I hadn't earned it. I felt like a criminal let off scot-free. She says, this was my first powerful lesson on judgment and mercy. And since then, I've never gotten over the way that grace feels. It's like waiting for the other shoe to drop, but it never does. It's experiencing utter relief and humility in the face of guilt because you know how bad you can be But God, or your daddy, chooses to love and forgive you anyway. You see, mercy is not something that God owes to us, but it's something that God extends in kindness and grace to those who do not deserve it. Mercy, Scripture says, truly triumphs over judgment. Well, we are currently in this study 
exploring what we're calling the Psalms of Ascent. And that is a grouping of psalms that were traditionally sung together as, as groups of Jewish pilgrims made their way to Jerusalem for the annual festivals and celebrations. They were making their way toward the house of God for corporate celebration and worship. And so as we work our way through these psalms, I hope that you see that we're seeing a progression. We began in Psalm 120 when we learned that we must take our eyes off of our surroundings and focus them on God as our only rescuer. And then in Psalm 121, we lifted our eyes to the hills, the hills of Zion, and recognizing that the Lord was guarding and protecting us on this journey, no matter the circumstances in this life and in this world. Then last week, we focused on Psalm 122, and we were reminded of the vitality and strength that comes as we delight in the house of the Lord, in worshiping together, regularly assembling as God's called out people. And now today, we're moving on into Psalm 123. And we're going to look above the hills to the Lord in heaven as we seek His mercy, His overwhelming kindness and grace towards us who do not deserve it. You know, the goal of the Jewish pilgrim really was never to get to Jerusalem, as important as that city was, or even to get to the temple, as important as it was. Their goal was to spend time with God Himself, whose true throne is not anywhere on earth, but in heaven. And today, as modern pilgrims, we too must stick together making our way through this crazy, unpredictable, uncertain world full of fear and anxiety, helping one another stay focused on the goal and the prize that is set before us. Although this psalm is a very short one, it's just four verses long, it is rich and actually gives us a pretty comprehensive picture of how we can seek God's mercy together. So I'd like to invite you to read together with me Psalm 123. The words will be on the screen. Let's read this together as the congregation. Psalm 123. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of the master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, until He is gracious to us. Be gracious to us, O Lord. Be gracious to us, for we are greatly filled with contempt. Our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. Psalm 123, a psalm of ascent. And so today, we ask, how can we seek the Lord's mercy together? The first thing that we can do as God's people is that we can anticipate contempt and scoffing from the world around us. Like his fellow Hebrews, the psalmist lived the majority of his life not on the mountaintop in the temple in Jerusalem, but rather in the valleys where he was surrounded by the ungodly. 
And both he and God's people around him recognized the difference that existed between God's people and the people in the world. And it was not just a physical difference that separated them. As a Jew, the psalmist had a completely different worldview and set of values than the people around him. And those differences were evident in the way he lived his life. The choices he made, the way he treated others, the way he responded to success and failure and prosperity and need. And so it's not hard to imagine the contempt that would have come from those around who were self-sufficient, those who were proud of their own accomplishments. Perhaps they taunted the psalmist by calling him weak because he needed God to help him. Perhaps they called him a a religious zealot or holier-than-thou. You see, folks, if we choose to follow Jesus, to live our lives in a manner that is consistent with His Word, then we are going to find ourselves being set apart from many people in the world around us. We're going to be looked down upon at times or misunderstood. Sometimes our words or our beliefs are going to be twisted or ridiculed or even called outdated. But as Christ followers, we really shouldn't be caught off guard by this type of contempt. After all, Jesus himself was called a glutton and a drunkard, and he was accused of all kinds of things that were not true. So why would we expect that we're going to be treated any better than our Lord? In fact, Jesus actually warned us that we ought to expect and even anticipate that type of contempt. You see, we cannot expect those who do not know God to comprehend the things of God or to be able to understand the things that his children believe and do. And so we should never be caught off guard when we face the contempt of the world. You see, by anticipating that contempt, then we will be in a much better position to both receive God's mercy and then in turn to extend it towards those who don't know him as the Lord calls us to do. Not only is a God is God a God who extends mercy to us, but he desires and expects that we would be people that radically extend mercy to those around us, especially those that don't know Jesus Christ. And so we must anticipate the contempt and scoffing that will come. The next thing that we can do as we work our way towards being people of mercy is to acknowledge God's sovereignty. The psalm that we read began with these words, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Now, this is actually the first time in this series of Psalms of Ascent where the psalmist actually addresses God directly. As he lifts up his eyes and as he speaks to God, he refers to God as the one who is enthroned in heaven. When the psalmist looks up to God, he is acknowledging that God is above and that he is separated from mankind. And he's humbly seeking God's help. He's not commanding or demanding God as if God were some sort of magic genie who's there to do his bidding. 
Because God is sovereign. The idea of God being enthroned is a picture of his might, his absolute authority. God is the ruler of the universe who is completely capable of bringing his purposes and his plans and his ways to complete fulfillment. So guess what that means? He doesn't need our help to fix things down here. The psalmist recognizes that there is a God in heaven who is ultimately in charge. And so instead of becoming obsessed with the failings of the world or fretting over the failings of worldly structures or governments or systems, the person who chases after Jesus becomes obsessed with the things of heaven. That's where his whole focus is. Brothers and sisters, I can't focus, I can't stress enough how important it is for us to keep our eyes on God when we see the failing world around us. In this passage, in this psalm, there is an emphasis on eyes. And in each of the four times that the word eyes is used in the psalm, it's a reference to keeping our focus, our vision on God and not on the people around us or on our circumstances. You see, if we don't do that, then we will quickly find that we can't possibly apply the remaining principles that we're going to look at this morning. Many years after this psalm was written, the author of the letter to the Hebrews reminded the early Christians of the importance of keeping their focus on God. Listen to these words from Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So may we remain focused on Jesus, on the sovereignty of God, and on the joy set before us, not on the decaying world that is so prevalent around us. And so... We anticipate the world's contempt. And then we acknowledge God's sovereignty. And as we do these things, then number three, we are able to abandon our rights. Abandon our rights. The psalmist gives us two pictures to illustrate how we are to look to God as we journey together. In verse two, he says, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he is gracious to us or merciful to us. In the culture of the psalmist's day, servants were devoted to serving the needs of their masters. A good servant would carefully observe the habits and the lifestyles of his master, and then he would seek to incorporate those qualities into his own life. And in particular, he would watch his master's hand. Since even a simple 
inconspicuous movement of the hand could be an indication that the servant needed to serve, to fulfill a wish, to know what his master desired. You see, in order to be an effective servant, the servant had to put aside all of his own rights and focus what was pleasing to the master. And so the psalmist uses that picture to look to God in the same way. He abandoned his own rights so that he could be attentive to the desire of his master. And it's pretty easy to see why we can never get to this step if we fail to acknowledge God's sovereignty or keep our focus on him. If we focus on those who have wronged us in some way, the tendency is going to be on my rights or to get even or to win in some way. But you see, God has something much better than revenge or payback or winning in store for those who would give up that right willingly to make Jesus Christ their master. The words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount describe some practical ways that we can give up our rights when we are wronged. Listen to Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your shirt, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. You see, as we follow our master, we find ourselves refocusing from my way to his way. May we be people focus on Jesus. Now, I suppose many of us are familiar with those words I just read from the Gospel of Matthew. But we also would recognize they're definitely not easy to put into practice in our everyday life. But when we do apply them, we find that we are actually freed from the bondage that results from our desire for revenge or our need to somehow protect our rights. The only way that we can be freed from that kind of bondage is to do as Jesus commanded and love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And that leads us then to our final application. Number four, appeal to God for mercy. When the psalmist prays to God, rather than praying for his rights or his opinions or his preferences to be upheld, He spends time praying to God for mercy. He makes an appeal for mercy. The word translated mercy means to show favor, to be gracious. And when used to describe God's dealings with his people, it is a picture of God doing something kind or helpful for someone in need when there is nothing 
to compel that action on his behalf. And so when we appeal for mercy, when the psalmist appeals for mercy, we are acknowledging that we are not deserving of God's intervention in our life. We understand that it is a gift from the sovereign God who is enthroned in heaven above. It is a humble act of petition from a servant to a master. But I also want you to see there's some urgency in this plea. Did you notice the repetition? Twice he asked God to have mercy on him. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on me. So even even though seeking God's mercy is dependent upon God to act, it's certainly not a passive thing. It requires consistently being in God's presence, looking to his hand so that we can be obedient to his commands. And in the same way that the servant and the maidservant are utterly dependent on their masters, we too are only able to serve God in the way that he desires as he gives us power to do so. We live in the midst of a self-centered culture. And it is not easy to acknowledge God's sovereignty. It is not easy to abandon our rights when we live in a nation founded on rights. We love our rights. But first and foremost, we are followers of Jesus Christ. And we must appeal to God, not for our rights, but for our mercy, His mercy. And it doesn't come natural for us to do that. And so we must speak to God to seek His power, His help, in order to live in the way that He's lined out for us. That is the point that the Apostle Paul makes when he writes to the Philippian church. Listen to this little verse in Philippians 2.12. My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. You see, as followers of Jesus, we have the responsibility to work out our salvation. That doesn't mean that we are doing things to achieve salvation. No, that is the wonderful gift that God has bestowed upon us. But it What it means is that we have an important role to play in the process of becoming more like Jesus. But if we limit our participation in that process to what we can do in our own power, we will never be successful. It is only when we recognize that God is at work in the lives of his children and when we become fully dependent on his power that we can do the things that we've talked about this morning. You know, when a, a new website launches or when an app comes out or it launches a new feature, commonly those things go to public for a period of time in what's called by the developers the beta mode. And the idea of a beta site or a beta mode is that it's a, a test site or a test mode. It's available for people to use but with the understanding that you might find a few bugs in it. 
the site or the app is not making any claims that they have everything worked out to perfection. And the hope is that if you find a problem with the beta site or the beta app, then you might think to yourself, oh yeah, this is a beta site. Maybe I should send the designers a message so that they'll know that they still have a problem here. Now, if you're a mature person, you don't get angry with that app or that website if you find a broken link or something that doesn't work quite right. We could say that that beta site or that app is in grace-expected mode. You see, the developers are counting on you to give them grace as they try to make a better product. Well, let's apply that thinking to our Christian journey and to the church, God's called-out community. We will be more like Christ when we treat the people that we are journeying with each day as beta Christians. You see, we are all a work in progress. We all need mercy. None of us is complete yet. So we come together and we acknowledge God's sovereignty. We come to understand that this is His church. And as we do, may we abandon our struggle for our rights and our opinions and our preferences and instead focus on helping one another through this very difficult world that we live in. Because together, we are seeking and crying out, Lord, have mercy. Therefore, we should go through every day expecting that we will need to extend mercy to others. Not just once, but many times. You know, there is certainly no one in history that experienced more undeserved contempt and scoffing than Jesus Christ. There is no one who suffered more on account of faith and truth than Jesus. There is no one who had more rights but willingly gave them up than Jesus. And there is no one who extended mercy more frequently with more abundance than Jesus Christ. As He hung on the cross for their benefit, the people responded to Jesus' loving sacrificial act with contempt. Listen to these words from Luke 23. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at Him, saying, He saved others. Let Him save Himself if He is the Christ of God. The chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Jesus could have easily exacted his revenge on those people. He could have called his Father in heaven to bring fire from heaven and give them the judgment that they absolutely deserve. But instead, here's how he prayed to God on their behalf. Father, forgive them, 
for they know not what they do. Brothers and sisters, how can we respond in any other way? We must be people who not just pursue mercy, who not just receive mercy, but may we be a people who are lavish in extending mercy. First in the household of God, and then to those in the world who are so far away, so lost and so confused. May we represent Jesus in very practical and real ways by being a people of mercy.